the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 11. David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs. Is he on the way out? Talking with William D. Cohan of Puck News. Our guest today is Bill Cohan, the New York Times best-selling author and preeminent financial journalist. He's profiled corporate giants like General Electric in Power Failure and Goldman Sachs in Money and Power, among other bestsellers. He joins us from his home in Nantucket. Hi, Bill, and welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you, Jim. It's great to be here again. Bill, tell us about Puck News, where you keep your finger on the pulse of the financial markets and the people who move those markets. It's a two-year-old digital media company. just successfully completed its second round of fundraising, and uh, which I think uh, sets it apart from almost any other media company out there. We have been very fortunate in being able to recruit some of the uh, best journalists in their respective fields, like Matt Bellany, who covers uh, Hollywood, and uh, Teddy Schleifer, who covers billionaires, and Julia Ioffe, who covers Russia and uh, the battle in Ukraine. And uh, I cover uh, Wall Street, and we all own equity in the business. And, you know, I think, I hope we're gaining uh, momentum and, and readership. Uh-huh. Well, congratulations on the on being part of uh, Puck News. I do read it, and recently you you did a profile on David uh, Solomon, and of course Goldman Sachs. Their second quarter profits were down fifty eight percent, and there have been rumors about David Solomon that his tenure as CEO at Goldman may be coming to an end. What are your thoughts about David Solomon, Goldman Sachs, and their current business strategy? Well, there's a, there's a lot to unravel in that question. Well, look, I, I wrote a book about Goldman uh, that you mentioned in the opening. Appreciate that. I used to compete against Goldman when I was uh, a banker on Wall Street. So I know them to be uh, you know, an, an exceptional an exceptional firm, the envy of uh, most other bankers on Wall Street, uh, perhaps the best brand on Wall Street. Uh, usually uh, atop the Wall Street, you know, M&A and underwriting and investment banking uh, league tables year in and year out. Usually very, very profitable and the people who work there uh, make a lot of money and the partners there, though they're not technically partners like they used to be in the old days before it went public, they make even more money. So if you're uh, somebody who wants to make a lot of money, doesn't want to take a lot of personal risk, Goldman Sachs is the place for you. I will say it's harder to get a job at Goldman Sachs than it is to get into Harvard, uh, <laughs> just in terms of the number of applicants and the number of people they hire. But look, it's uh, a firm that's been around since uh, 1869, been in and out of trouble uh, its entire existence. It is, you know, very nimble, knows how to make money in uh, good markets and bad. Even when it stumbles, it manages to find its way 
uh, out of trouble. Uh, now, you know, having uh, said all that, you know, since the beginning of the year, I think it kicked off with a cover story in The Economist. You know, they called it uh, sort of Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sags, <laughs> show this logo of a melting ice cube or something. Basically, it's been nonstop quasi-negative publicity, not so much for the firm, but really directed, as you said, towards David Solomon, the CEO, who's been the CEO for five years, came from Bear Stearns more than 20 years ago. Uh, he was uh, came at the time of the Goldman uh, IPO in 1999. So he's been at the firm a long time, So, but he's not homegrown. He worked at Drexel. He worked at Bear Stearns. So he's a bit of a mongrel in that sense. And I think he was a very good banker. He a very commercial uh, banker, made a lot of money for the firm and for himself. And I'm sure, you know, that's why uh, Lloyd Blankfein and his predecessor chose him to be CEO. He's been there five years, known him a long time. I He helped me with my book about Bear Stearns. He helped me with my book about Goldman. Mm -hmm. I wrote a profile uh, about him in uh, Vanity Fair soon after he became CEO. Uh, he's generally cooperated with me on all sorts of uh, things. So find that uh, he is smart and aggressive, speaks his mind. He doesn't like that you did something. He's not afraid to tell you. I'm sure he pushes people hard at Goldman Sachs. They've made some strategic stumbles over the last few years with this whole effort into consumer banking that mm -hmm. they're pulling back from. On the other hand, the stock has done pretty well under David's tenure, probably doubled in the last five years. That mm -hmm. may be uh, less than uh, Morgan Stanley, probably more than J.P. Morgan Chase. Definitely a rough a second quarter that they just had. You know, maybe that was a, a kitchen sink kind of a second quarter where they throw everything negative that they can think of into the quarter. But it remains a very tenuous situation for him. He, he has not gotten a public endorsement out of his board. You know, frankly, it's something that's probably overdue at this point. Uh, if they're going to stick with him. If the third quarter doesn't come in better than the first as the second quarter, he could be he could be in some trouble. Let's come so. back to the foray into consumer banking. I think the the company is called Marcus or the group is called Marcus. Why would a storied Wall Street investment bank like Goldman Sachs venture mm -hmm. into kind of the pedestrian world of consumer banking. Now, of course, I guess one of the reasons to sort of answer my own question, of course, in consumer banking, of course, there's that ocean of very cheap deposits that as a funding source has always been very attractive and has been the lifeblood of most, most commercial banks. But what were David Solomon's rationale for getting into that business? Because all of the other commercial banks would give their eye teeth to have the kind of investment banking, corporate banking practice that Goldman Sachs has. So what was his rationale for venturing into consumer banking? Go Goldman doesn't have a big depository mm -hmm. uh, institution. It doesn't have a branch network. You can't go to a Goldman Sachs ATM machine, right? Uh, so it doesn't have a source of cheap funding. Now, 
cheap funding is also a liability. You know, you found out at Silicon Valley Bank, cheap funding flee the premises very rapidly, especially in the era of iPhone withdrawals and deposits. You know, that can be a major liability and mm -hmm. an existential threat for banks, as we saw earlier this year. So, uh, but I think, you know, yes, Goldman has this, you know, world-class investment banking uh, business. It's the envy of other uh, banks, but it doesn't have uh, a source of cheap funding like, say, JP Morgan Chase, which has around, you know, more than $2 trillion of deposits, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, it can, you know, can, it basically gets its raw material for free. Because if you look at uh, what JP Morgan Chase pays uh, depositors uh, in their savings account or checking account, it's like, one basis point or two basis points. It's its nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Goldman uh, wanted to create markets to create, you know, get a source of, of cheaper funding. I think, you know, uh, even when uh, the, the Fed was engaging in quantitative easing, Goldman and, and J.B. Morgan uh, could pay depositors one basis point or two basis points. You know, markets had to pay, you know, much, much more. And mm -hmm. even today they pay like four and a quarter percent, not two basis points. So it's a lot more. So, you know, what that tells me is that JP Morgan Chase doesn't really want any more deposits, but Goldman does. And it's four and a, even if they have to pay four and a quarter percent, that's probably, you know, one of the cheaper uh, forms of financing that they have. So part of it was to accumulate uh, assets that they could, you know, raw material that mm -hmm. they could use to then lend out and, and capture the spread. Right. So that is one of the main uh, drivers, because, you know, essentially what uh, Goldman really needs to do is probably to, uh, and I've written this a few times, is, is merge with a, a depository institution. They need a bigger balance sheet. They need those deposits. But the Fed won't allow that. And the Fed has not allowed that uh, of any of these SIFI uh, banks, systemically important financial institutions, since the 2008 financial crisis. So. Mm -hmm. For the last 15 years, Goldman has had its hand tied behind its back strategically. And unlike Morgan Stanley, which got into the money management business by buying Smith Barney, by buying E-Trade, by buying uh, some other uh, companies, uh, Goldman didn't didn't do any of those things. I think they thought, yeah, this would be a sort of a cyclical situation where eventually uh, the Fed would, you know, uh, relax some of its rules and you know, Goldman could resume doing what Goldman has always done to make a lot of money. But uh, it turned out to be more systemic than cyclical, and they haven't been able to uh, get out of the box that they're in. So I think this thrust into consumer banking was their way to try to, to, to have some growth, right, to increase their access to cheaper funding, mm -hmm. not really cheap, but cheaper funding, and then use that to make uh, commercial loans to make corporate loans to make personal loans to capture the spread it really hasn't worked for a variety of, of reasons uh, first of all it's a uh, very competitive and second of all you make loans and there are loan losses and there are loan loss reserves and you know things don't always you know work out and i think they've lost money and um, that especially was the case in 2022 when uh, the losses from that consumer banking side of the business really hurt the bonus pool on the investment banking side of the business. So the investment bankers are grumbling and they're not happy. Mm -hmm. And I think they're probably a source of uh, many of these articles about uh, about David Solomon.
But, you know, I think David has finally realized that the strategic thrust didn't really work. They've pulled back from some of that. Their fundamental business is their their investment banking business, I should say, is fundamentally sound. It's still healthy, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's world beating. It's world beating. So at this point, if he, I guess they're going to exit the consumer financing business and Will they allocate more resources to what they do best? What is his game plan now that they're going to be exiting this, uh, the consumer finance business? How is he going to, what's he going to replace it with? Well, I mean, I don't think they're going to get out of it completely. I think they're going to sort of slowly wind it down. They're going to try s- selling some pieces of it. Uh, uh, they, you know, they bought a fintech company that they're trying to sell. Uh, that, you know, maybe they'll take a big loss on you know i think you know marcus is still going to exist still going to make commercial loans and corporate loans and you know they're going to still do some aspects of it but i, I you know i remember when i uh, uh interviewed david for the vanity fair piece and he was talking about goldman sachs getting into the cash management business for corporations mm. and i and i was thinking that doesn't sound very goldman sachs like to me but i mean i think that, that, that there's this you know other idea that you know, just being sort of surrounding uh, your clients with all sorts of products, uh, you know, makes them more sort of dependent slash loyal to you than, you know, you don't want your competitors, uh, you know, getting inroads. And I think they saw uh, some of the things that, you know, JP Morgan does uh, by being, you know, doing those things that are probably low margin, uh, but they just are sticky, you know, once you once you, you know, it's, inertia is a very powerful force. It's hard to unwind some of those relationships if you're, like, really in their shorts. So I think maybe that was, you know, part of it. What about the wealth management business? They've made a foray into that over the years. How successful have they been with the high net worth individuals, with the, uh, the wealth management business? I've never really understood why Goldman didn't have a more dynamic uh, and powerful business. Uh, money management business, wealth management business, but they seem to have struggled uh, with it for a long time. And I really don't understand it. Uh, Maybe because they're too high end. I don't know. Maybe they're too elitist. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, Maybe they haven't had the right management at the top. I do not know, but they've struggled with it uh, for a very long time. And frankly, it makes no sense given their brand. There were even some some murmurs about Lloyd Blankfein coming back. Did you hear anything to that effect, Bill? No, he's not coming back. Yeah, I wouldn't Uh, have thought so. uh, No, he's definitely not coming back. And he went on CNBC to refute that uh, suggestion that he uh, would come back and Goldman pushed very back very hard on this whole idea that he and David had some sort of tiff and that uh, Lloyd was, uh, you know, upset and was suggesting that he might come back or offering himself up as somebody who might come back. I think he did offer himself up to be helpful to David. And, you know, who knows whether David wants that or needs that uh, help. I mean, David would benefit a lot right now by having the board of directors of Goldman Sachs uh, come out and endorse him, you know, if they can. And if they can't, you know, let's get that out on the table too, because, you know, it's become sort of like a, a water torture, a sort of drip, drip, drip of constantly negative uh, stories about David Salman personally, uh, and they're personal uh, too. And, and no CEO of a public company can 
endure that. And it's not fair to, to him and it's not fair to the employees. It's not fair to the shareholders. It's not fair to the creditors. It's not fair to the vendors. So uh, the board needs to, you know, frankly, get off its butt and, you know, either endorse him and sort of uh, or, you know, put him out of his misery. Mm -hmm. And they haven't done that. So the third quarter, of course, we're in the third quarter as we speak. Uh, The third quarter, which will end September 30th, we still have a good six, seven weeks to run until the uh, the end of the third quarter and the the results, uh, my guess it perhaps that's what the uh, the board of directors is waiting to see if there are you know some green shoots of uh, of recovery that are that are happening during this third quarter that would uh, that would strengthen the case to keep uh, Solomon in place. I, I agree. I mean, I think the third quarter is probably uh, pivotal at this point and obviously the board is meeting uh, in september the third quarter is better than the second quarter and and there aren't those kind of big uh, write-offs and i suspect the third quarter you know july was probably a pretty good month august has been a little rougher um uh, the ipo market's coming back yes some big ipos are being filed now Uh, my, my 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 bad is that uh you know he's not an idiot and uh he, he knew he had to take some write-offs, and he took them in the second quarter. You know, the third quarter and the fourth quarter will be better. But I'll tell you something, uh, Jim, if they're not, then his his job is on the line for that question. And if, and if I were on the board at that point, I would say, okay, you know, les jeux sont faits. Les jeux sont faits. Let's come back to the, the culture. Of course, as you mentioned, Goldman Sachs dates from 1869. It was a partnership structure. And uh, then, of course, moved to the public company structure. But there are still many in uh, leadership positions at the firm who were products of that partnership culture. And I guess that culture and its traditions and practices is uh, very deeply imbued in the, uh, the culture of the company itself. Was that a mistake for Goldman to move away from the partnership culture to the public company culture? I mean, obviously, the uh, partners, certainly the pool of capital available to a partnership is going to be smaller than the pool of capital that's available to a publicly held company. But is, is that part of what we're seeing now, that Goldman still is struggling with the shift from the partnership culture to the publicly held company culture? Because I'm thinking, you know, some of the criticisms that we've heard about David Solomon have been stylistic. Apparently, he he fancies himself to be an amateur DJ and uh, so on and so forth. But then I think of colorful CEOs like uh, Jack Welsh, whom you profiled in Power Failure, the, the, the late CEO of uh, General Electric. How much of this, how much of the problem with David Solomon is cultural and the fact that maybe Goldman Sachs itself still hasn't made the transition from that partnership culture to the public company culture. Goldman really couldn't stay uh, private uh, anymore, uh, given its ambitions. As you said, it's much easier to get uh, capital uh, when you're a public company, and when you're private, capital is much more expensive. So, you know, they were at a competitive disadvantage uh, among their you know, on Wall Street being private. 
uh, because their cost of capital was so much higher than mm-hmm. their competitors. Plus, uh, all the other reasons that people go public to create a currency so they can make acquisitions to you know, create stock options and give people incentives and restricted stock and get them to stay. And, you know, also, you know, to allow original stockholders to cash out. Uh, and of course, if you were a pre-IPO partner of, of Goldman, you made like $300 million at the time of the IPO. So eventually after, you know, a decade of debating it, uh, Goldman decided to go public in May of 1999. And, you know, they still have this quote unquote partnership uh, group, uh, which they which is like the brass ring and they, they name those partners every two years. And of course that's what everybody at the firm aspires to. And you can usually be a partner for like eight or 10 years and you get paid more than like a managing director. Uh, you know, it's, uh, that's their effort to try to not only reward that group of people, but to say, you know, here, here are our leaders, uh, at the firm and the firm has gotten much bigger. It's now like 40, thousand people and they're probably like you know 400 or so uh, partners so it's an elite group that sort of manages the firm and runs the firm and is the acknowledged leaders of the firm and they gripe and the old partners gripe (laughs) so there's a lot of griping and 2022 was a tough year because the losses that that i was talking about in the consumer banking side and that hit the bonus pool and so if you're like having a great year as an investment banker or a trader, which, you know, basically they did, then, you know, and your bonus goes down because of some amorphous losses in a consumer banking strategic thrust that you would never have recommended they do in the first place, then you're going to gripe and you're going to be, you're going to moan. And uh, I think uh, what they'd be wiser to do, but that doesn't mean they're going to do it, is to sort of look at the two-year, their two-year bonus uh, uh you know, windfall, you know, in 2021 was an unbelievable year. And I'm sure they got paid incredibly well and 2022 was down. So now they complain about 22. They should look at the two of them together and say, okay, how did I do? You know, but this is the way these guys keep score. I mean, they, they, you know, they're, they're not in private equity. They're not in hedge funds. You know, they don't have their own money at risk. It's kind of a zero sum game. You know, if, if somebody else gets a bigger bonus, they get a smaller bonus, the, you know, the, the way it goes. And so they, you know, there's a lot of, uh, bitching and moaning going on now. And, you know, I, frankly, uh, Jim, I think it's it's, un- it's unseemly at this point, and it's not helpful to any of the Goldman Sachs uh, stakeholders. And so it would be just, if the board has lost faith in him, then, then he's got to go. And if they haven't lost faith in him, then they've got to come out and say, you know, we support David, you know, that'll put an end to this public blithering that's been going on for much of this year i mean on the one hand i suspect that um david has earned some of this negative uh publicity it's 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 not made up i mean i know it's easy to blame uh journalists for writing these things but it's not made up it's Mm -hmm. just a reflection of what people are saying on the other hand it's gotten a little bit out of hand at this point think of as i say the board could put an end to it and the fact that they haven't is unprofessional and irresponsible and cowardly make a decision you're getting paid 500 grand a year to be a board member at goldman sachs this is the kind this is the moment where you need to step up and either support your ceo or get a new one is there someone waiting in the wings is there a, a senior sure. So, sure, there are always people uh, waiting in the wings. You know, his number two is John Waldron, who's you know sort of attached to the hip uh, to David. Came with him 
from Bear Stearns. I mean, he seems to be well-liked, probably less uh, abrasive uh, in many ways than, than David. But there are others, too. So, yeah, there's always somebody who's willing to be CEO of Goldman Sachs, unlike, say, CEO of Disney, which they didn't, can't seem to find. <laughs> but, uh, Bill, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about this uh, about this storied company in the annals of American finance, Goldman Sachs, where, what are your closing thoughts? Look, you know, if, if someone has written a book about the firm and traced its uh, origins from 1869, I mean, the firm has been in and out of trouble so many times during the, uh, during the depression, 1969 and 1970, during the back office crisis, when Penn Central went bankrupt during 1994, when 44 partners left the firm, 2008, the firm is, um, you know, Wall Street's a very dangerous place, Jim. Uh, people forget that. They think it's, you know, the, that it's so, you know, you're just, it's always low-hanging fruit. It's always so easy just to make money. But I think we saw with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and Signature Bank how dangerous banking can be. Uh, Wall Street is incredibly dangerous, as we saw in 2008 with, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman going down the tubes. Uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, basically, too, almost, you know, Morgan Stanley, almost, uh, uh, you know, even even Goldman Sachs might have if it uh, had gone on. You know, Goldman is generally a much better risk-taking firm than other firms. Um, they got a lot of smart people there. They, they're survivors. They're the, you know, I, I don't want to say they're the cockroaches of Wall Street, <laughs> but they know how to survive when the lights come on. They, they uh they know what they're doing, generally have the right person at the right time leading the firm. Uh, and even when they get out of trouble, they're very in trouble. They're very nimble about uh, figuring out a way to get out of trouble. The, you know, even if they have to replace David, there's a deep bench and they will they will quickly uh, they'll recover from this. And you don't have to worry about Goldman Sachs. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, people love to write about them and talk about them because, you know, they're like the New York Yankees or, or Duke basketball people to kind of love to hate them. <laughs> but they also envy them. Absolutely. Well, Bill, before I let you go, tell us about uh, any of your writing projects at this point. Is there is there a new book uh, in the offing? Yes, I've started working on a new book. I, I definitely not a sequel to the GE book that stands on its own, but it's a, a book about um, Apollo Global Management, the, the firm that sprang out of the ashes of Drexel Burnham and was run uh, until the last few years by Leon Black. Uh, and it is now run by Mark Rowan, a very powerful, relatively unknown firm on Wall Street, but extremely powerful and important. And, you know, the story, the 30-year the story of that firm is rather extraordinary. So that's my next project. When is that uh, due to come out, Bill? Uh, hopefully before the end of my lifetime. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a few years anyway. A couple of years, I see. Yeah. And Bill, how can our listeners follow you? Well, I, I mean, I write twice a week for Puck.News, so I certainly would encourage people to subscribe to that. Uh, it's definitely worth it, not just for me, uh, but for my uh, partners as well. Um, my website is WilliamCohan.com. There's a lot of stuff I've written there. And, you know, and a Google search will definitely uh, reveal a lot of, of stuff. My books are, you know, I've written seven books, so they're obviously available. And, you know, some you can pick up for pennies on the dollar, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> at this point. And the spelling of the last name is C-O-H-A-N, William D. Right. Cohan. You got it. Very good. Once again, Bill, thank you very much for joining us. 
shedding light on the situation at Goldman Sachs and David Solomon. And uh, look forward to having you back once this situation becomes resolved one way or another. And again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jim. Really appreciate it. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 437. The San Francisco Experience podcast is featured on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized us as Top 25 California News Podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.